Recording. Test, test. Oh, that could be a little higher, though. All right. All right. Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Okay, welcome back. You were on vacation. How was your trip? It was really good. I uh, went down to Arizona and got a lot of sunshine, and it was a good recharge because, um, you know, there was an interesting return with the drop of the podcast. Oh, yeah. It, it was, it was like, deeply stressful for me in a way that I didn't expect. It felt very much like a tempest in a teapot. Like, the first day when that came out, there was just a lot of chatter, and then the next day was, like, nothing. The day after, I went on a dog walk with my friend, and it was sunny out, and it was nice, and I, and I was just, he's like, what's wrong, man? I'm like, oh, well, I, I, we released this podcast, and we did this thing with the Blue Alaskan, and it's been kind of stressful. And he's like, who's the Blue Alaskan? <laughs> like, he'd never heard of it. This is a guy that, like, keeps up with politics, and I forget, like, how how niche the work that, that you know, that, that, that Beck was doing uh, covering Save Anchorage was. It's very like Anchorage municipal government. So a lot of people here in Juneau, when when I talk about this, don't have any idea what it is or what it was um, and maybe learned about it for the first time through the podcast, which was kind of interesting to me. You so, know, I think we definitely got caught up in it. I know, or at least I definitely got caught up in it. And, you know, again, it was, you know, the whole thing lasted for maybe 24 hours we got a little bit of criticism and I think some of that is probably worth addressing um, just because, you know, we took it, we, we took it to heart. And so I think that we want to take a second to address that. We are, you know, a, a podcast of, of two guys who are doing this kind of for fun without like a lot of the safety net. We don't have an editor or producer, right? We have all of uh, those things. It's just that it's us. <laughs> yeah. Just it's us. And, uh, and but also, you know, this is a podcast that was mostly recorded like a month ago before a lot of the sort of additional details or questions about like what's next uh, were really figured out for Beck. I think the main criticism that that came through was that we didn't we didn't ask enough or the right questions or we didn't really probe about who Beck was. And I think that the that's probably our fault for not providing the context of the interview in that this, mm-hmm. you know, this person reached out to us and said, Hey, I want to do this, but I have some specific requests that we, you know, I don't want to reveal specifically who I am. I'm fine with saying my name, wait for this podcast to come out for a while because I'm not ready. One the initial concern wasn't even this new job. We should, we should mention that the, uh, the blue Alaskan, uh, Matthew Beck is now been hired by the, uh, Alaska democratic party. Uh, to do communications. The the job actually wasn't even a real consideration when we first recorded because it never came up. It was never part of the discussion. I don't even think it was on the table. The consideration in waiting was that the Anchorage elections were about to happen. And so the thought was that we shouldn't put this out right before the elections or whatever. We want to wait for things to cool off until afterwards and then kind of make this announcement about who he was. And then we ended up waiting so long that it bumped up against this job opportunity. In that initial interview, we, we spent probably three hours chatting in in late March and you did ask what was coming next it's just that the answer was wrong by the time it was ready to come out and so you know I I cut a lot of that stuff out and maybe I shouldn't have maybe I should have just let it sit and be what it was but also I didn't want it to be three hours long so (laughs) a little bit of a trade-off and I think that you know we explored the things that we were curious about we talked about 
you know, the shop element. We talked about the work that they were doing. We talked about what is Save Anchorage and and tried to make that information available to people who may not have already known kind of what's going on in this like closed environment that, that Matthew Beck had done a lot of coverage of. Beck talked about, you know, the, the threats and, and some of the things that he'd received and, and the kind of that played into his reasons for anonymity. And, and I think that, you know, we're not in a great place. And we're, no one except for him is really in a great place to judge whether those concerns are legitimate. So I think, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, look at that sort of stuff and have scoffed at his concerns. And I, I just say, you know, like, we don't know. I, and I'm, I'm certainly not in a place to judge that. And yeah. so I think we really wanted to be kind of sensitive to some of those concerns with that. And also, I don't know how much it really matters. You know, I, I mean, I don't really need to know the intimate, deep, personal uh, life of every reporter in Alaska. You know, we aren't yeah. really, you know, we don't have any sort of special right to that information. We got the byline, right? And that's, and I don't think we were trying to go much further than the byline. Yeah. And I think that there will be, depending on where this person's life takes them, there will be more stories to be told. We also, our podcast doesn't have to be the the first last and only thing that's ever said about this entire story oh and it won't be i'm sure i'm sure that sure there will be more um it'll be great to see what work they do in this new context but it's also a little gonna leave a little bit of a hole in anchorage municipal coverage and it'll be uh you know we'll see who is able to fill that in and what that becomes maybe it's something that just evaporates or maybe someone else steps up and starts doing some kind of similar coverage just to say. Yeah, no, I know. It's just, it's like, it was just so jarring when like people, you know, like make the worst possible assumptions. And yeah, I think know, that's the thing is it's just, it's a lot of assumptions that I didn't anyways. Yeah. Well, whatever. I am yeah, not maybe, a very cloak yeah. and dagger person. And uh, as evidenced by this podcast, I am an oversharer. And I think <laughs> that it was really, really hard for me to, to know this thing for a while and to sit on it. Um, you know, <laughs> it was just, I'm not, I don't like secrets. Uh, so moving on, Matt, uh, redistricting. I lo- we haven't talked about redistricting for a couple weeks, and it's been something you've been covering very deeply this year. Um, I feel like we need a redistricting jingle at this point. We but need, I guess yeah. there's only hopefully there's only like three more updates on. Oh, this maybe we can get Hal Chris guy to come do it. Redistricting yeah. jingle. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, the uh, redistricting um, redistricting update is that last time we talked, uh, the. the courts had made their decision and had sent it back to the redistricting board and it was like two easy fixes and it was sure they're going to just take care of that and it'll all be over and what happened (laughs) yeah so actually this is a a couple weeks now in the rearview mirror but the alaska redistricting board did return to the table you know and they had directions to fix two problems which is um, there's the Cantwell carve out, which was easy, but still somehow was kind of made hard. You know, the courts basically said there's one option to hear and just get rid of this thing. So they got rid of that. And then the other thing is not as clear. So the East Anchorage Senate pairings, it seemed like the reasonable answer in this was um, so the courts found that, you know, that the the board did a unconstitutional partisan gerrymander that was benefiting Eagle River Republicans at the expense of East Anchorage. So kind of the sensible thing everyone thought. Pair Eagle River with Eagle River. Eagle River and Eagle River go together. East Anchorage and East Anchorage go together. Um, Of course, the board found a different way to do it. Um, (laughs) So now we have Eagle River South Anchorage. It was just such an amazing, like, backflip, twist, acrobatic, like... (laughs) 
it was yeah. so it was so apparent what they should do and then they just didn't do that and the the kind of the reasoning behind it was sort of suspect they were talking about how oh they both have outhouses and uh there's bears and there's fires but then even like several people who like were former and current legislators that have represented this area go now actually the area of anchor or the area of eagle river that you're thinking about that is the rural one is the other eagle river district and they're like you know this one most people live on no very few people have outhouses in this district you know and i like that but even then outhouses the constitutional contiguity yeah it's not the outhouses it's the drainage right it's like which way the outhouses flow (laughs) that's what matters and so uh, but yeah, they're, they're talking about uh, it's sort of, you know, the, in the big picture, it's a Republican advantage um, of like one seat, which we all know can be pretty important. And it also uh, the, the final pairing pairs together Eagle River Republican Senator Laura Reinbold, South Anchorage Republican Senator Roger Holland and former Republican Senate President Kathy Giesel, who's on a comeback tour into the same race and those these are all three people that have all kind of been different pains in the side of the republican party you know um yeah was Giesel astoundingly was too liberal for them maybe too Mm -hmm. moderate for them reinbold is reinbold and roger holland was is not entirely a dunleavy like shill i guess he said no one time he said no one time he said no he said didn't even say no he just said uh like let's take a week or two kind yeah. of thing and it was you know they 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 were getting on his case about the the trans sports bill thing anti-trans oh, sports yeah bill. so th- th- so that's the i you know you get the idea basically and so it's it like puts wait, them give all me together one, give me one week to think about if these people are human beings yeah and <laughs> you're out of here too much yeah <laughs> and so um they're all together and so it kind of takes care of some problems for the overall party because obviously like they know that the far right is like the early the extreme rights of like the lower Reinbolds make it more difficult to enact extraordinarily friendly tax and oil policy right so they they approve that um they the other kind of argument that was worth sort of flagging on it is that they didn't really defend that district. They weren't ever really saying that this is actually a very good district. They were sort of specifically saying that the other Eagle River district, that is the Eagle River J Bear district, has to be defended because military voters are all Republicans, and we have to have a, putting them with one of the Democratic districts would be gerrymandering against the military. And well, and that's fa- so fair, I guess. The, I don't think it is fair. Like, the, did, did, <laughs> I know. did at any point during the process, did anyone from J-Bear come and say anything about where they wanted to be placed? And would that have been appropriate if they had? Oh, the J, like J-Bear officials? No, no. Right. One, I don't think anyone because, has. I mean, you have reason... like former military officials. One of them, uh, Major Felisa Wilson, was one of the East Anchorage plaintiffs. Okay. So, yeah. so she didn't, you know, she was opposed to the way that they ended up. Well, um, I don't think for, you know, for a military installation, I don't think it would be appropriate for them to, like, put their thumb on the scale of redistricting. And so yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's re- ridiculous to say that they even have opinion at all. I mean, that was actually brought up. And that I think that will, that could become an issue here in the appeals is the question is, does the military base and military population on that base garner any sort of special treatment? Because we do know that communities of interest do warrant that special treatment sure. and the courts have already identified Eagle River and East Anchorage as communities of interest that right. need to be taken and care if, of. Yeah. If if Eagle River is a community of interest, then it needs to be paired together in a Senate district. 
And there, there's no law that says that it has to. So that's that's so, what I mean, we, I mean. You can't have it both ways. You can't say J Bear is a community of interest and needs to be in this thing, uh, but therefore we're going to break up Eagle River and give them two. Like it's uh, right. It feels like like madness with some of this stuff, right? Well, like yeah. just the the level of like logistical and logical acrobatics well it's it's just a power is, play right it's, they just yeah. they're they're just trying to get what they want and they're and you get to a point where you're willing to say anything to win win the game and get their, the thing that you need <laughs> exactly and so anyway so right now we are in the appeals process um there's sort of two main appeals on the table right now this and so the what the east anchorage plaintiffs argue not that it was just putting eagle river with East Anchorage, but that it was boosting Eagle River's um, representation at the expense of another community. And that's really still alive in this plan, you know? So the, the Eagle River is still in the driver's seat of two districts. It's, but instead of having East Anchorage as the loser on this end of the deal, South Anchorage is a loser on this end of the deal. So, you know, I, I see there's a, there's a pretty good argument in there, but whether the courts have been really wary about, you know, prescribing specific resolutions to it. So I think that I wouldn't necessarily, I could, I guess I could see the judge going either way on this. They had oral arguments earlier this week, and it was essentially, you know, the East Anchorage plaintiffs in the Alaska Redistricting Board arguing to Judge Matthews about what Judge Matthews meant when Judge Matthews yeah. issued that order. So it's kind of a funny thing. And we, you know, it's been like four or five days since the, the oral arguments, and he hasn't put an opinion out yet. If that doesn't go forward, there is the new Girdwood <coughs> plaintiffs, who are a bunch of Girdwood residents that are in the South Anchorage district, who are basically arguing the same exact case as East Anchorage had successfully argued. And that case is going to be going forward on an like, extraordinarily expedited timeline. So I think they're looking at a resolution now by May 16 on that. But we're pressing up against the filing deadlines and stuff, right? So is this is this something that just becomes you know this is what we're stuck with for at least a year and then maybe next year it changes again well that's the question i i it's sort of that's uncertain because they've kind of been treating the january 1st filing deadline as if it is unbreakable but the thing is you know the january 1st filing deadline is not in the constitution it's in state law and uh, a couple people pointed out that when the republican party in the 90s i want to say were fighting over whether they could have a closed primary they actually ended up pushing back the candidate filing deadline. They pushed back oh. the they pushed back the primary election to f- September of that year. I want to say. Um, so so it, does that need to be an act of the legislature? No, the courts did it. I believe. Oh wow. Okay. Um, so there is there is some. I mean, I'd have to double check that, but I'm pretty yeah. sure. But um, so there there is some precedent of like you know, court cases being so critical that. The election gets pushed back um but you know they're they really are trying to get it resolved before january 1st so may 20 may 16 gives the supreme court like two weeks to review it and and because you know this case is very similar to one that they've already ruled on presumably it can go quick you know yeah. they would be able to probably get the briefings and oral arguments done and then you'd have a decision like three days before the filing deadline or maybe the but, day before. but also like it's like it's not the end of the world if they scoot the filing deadline back to like june 15th or something like right it's not going to break the elections yeah and so th- that's kind of what i i think too um 
So we'll see how that plays out forward. I mean, the the East Anchorage plaintiffs have been pretty wary about this whole thing. They've basically said that, you know, they are concerned that the main goal here by the last score districting board is to delay. Because this, you know, this happened before in 2012. Um, we got one plan for the 2012 elections, and then we had another plan for the 2014 elections. And there was mm-hmm. a lot that happened in those that one, you know, that one cycle, right? And so... Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of incumbents were defeated, never to return. And, you know, a big oil tax bill yeah. was passed um, by, you know, 11 votes in the Senate. Right. It, you know, they came down right to the wire on how, you know, on the votes they had. Yeah. Not a lot of recusals on that one. I remember that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, that was my, a funny one, because if employer. the Democrats in Fairbanks hadn't challenged it, there would have been at least one more Democrat. They paired two of the Democrats together in that area. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, they were going to get one of them, but then the redistricting went through, and oh, then they no. got split, and then they both lost. Right. Well, speak, speaking of uh, big changes and in the legislature, um, uh, your friend and mine, David Eastman, <laughs> has been kicked out of the minority. Yeah, um, not for any of the reasons that any of us have been thinking for the last no not for being at the january 6th insurrection not not for saying horrible things about alaska native women not for being a member of a seditious militia Um, not even not even really for also being a complete uh waste of time what did it boil down to for you i started kind of looking at the story yesterday um on friday and it was just there's a lot of there's a lot of layers to it yeah so the Republican minority kicked David Eastman out of their caucus, and then he was removed from the Rules Committee and the Ethics Committee. He gets to keep his spots on like the Judiciary, Health and Social Services, State Affairs, and Ways and Means. So he's yeah. not like he's completely sidelined. But they're talking about you know the reason, the kind of the, the off the cuff re- or the main reason they were giving was he's become a distraction. He's wasting time on the floor blah 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 those are all things you know that he can continue to do like he can continue to draft up tons of amendments and waste everybody's time what they really kind of got down to is that they don't no longer trust him to be in closed door caucus meetings anymore because right. basically they were sort of saying that like they're you know they're, they're talking about sort of strategy and internal politics and decision making and they don't trust him in on those conversations anymore yeah, they can't speak and, frankly around him yeah and i think it's really interesting because it's sort of in the context of eastman's whole style so he was kicked out of the caucus in 2020 and that was you know when him and alaska right to life which was at that time was being run by now representative Christopher Kirka were going after a bunch of the moderate Republicans for not being conservative enough. And they were doing it through all these kind of, you know, extreme um, amendments or motions to move bills out of committee, all this sort of stuff that was never going to pass, never going to fly anyways. But they would put these votes on the record in effort to embarrass the moderate Republicans. And to be clear, like, that's not a new ploy like it's happened that happens all the time but it usually doesn't happen from one party member to another party member usually it's same party. like usually it's like i'm trying to make someone in fairbanks uncomfortable so they lose their next election right like you know a democrat up there i'm gonna do something to really make him embarrassed right well he and, wants he, he wants a more pure party right he wants he yes wants to weed yeah. out all the embarrassed uh, he wants these moderate republicans to be embarrassed so he can get rid of them so he can replace them with more like-minded 
you know, stoogy Eastman juniors. And it's so far it's worked, right? You know, so Eastman was Eastman was kind of, you know, a lone figure up until 2018. 18, we saw um, uh, Ben Carpenter and Sarah Vance. Revac, right? Jackson. Yeah. Then you know, So these kind of Eastman-like characters come in. Um, this last election, we saw more of them. Gillum, uh, Kirka. Kirka's like, you know, Eastman Jr., basically. Um, McCabe is even... It's, and McCabe's so the wild... Peel, and so that is the wild though, thing, credit, is that McCabe like... is kind of, was kind of came in as an Eastman-like, but he's also found himself on the receiving end of yeah. Eastman stuff. Well, he spoke, spoke out against this organization that Eastman's affiliated with, uh, Fassel, F. <laughs> not the word facile but uh, was it facl or something like that yeah um but they're they're like one of those like state legislative groups that says okay you need to cause as much <laughs> pain and problems as you can to aggressively remove these moderates right yeah kind of their... so it's a foundation for applied conservative leadership it's basically you know yeah it's just a group that sort of employs pressure tactics to try to you know cow moderate republicans into being more conservative this group was specifically like rebuked by resolution at the Alaska Republican Party convention. Uh, McCabe has spoken out against them previously on the floor, talking about people just wasting time for the sake of wasting time. Yep. Earlier this week, before all this, McCabe um, made a motion on the floor that was really interesting, where he said, "All right, we're gonna you know move to eject this very conservative right-wing anti-abortion bill from East uh, that Eastman's been carrying from committee," and then. You know, I think Matt Clayman sets up and, and says, well, you know, Eastman hasn't done any work on this bill. He hasn't, you know, filed a uh, sponsor statement. He hasn't requested a hearing. He hasn't done anything on it. And then McCabe goes, oh, I didn't know that. I, sorry, I withdraw my motion. And then he makes another motion on one that is dealing with, I think, um, prohibit laws from taking away guns from people who are a known danger. <laughs> so it's an anti-red flag law. And uh, same thing, you know, so McCabe goes, stands up and he says, you know, I'm, this is important legislation for my committee. I'm you know, my community and I want to move it out. And Representative Sarah Hannon says, hey, he also hasn't done any work on this bill either. And so he sits, you know, he goes, oh, I'm going to apologize, you know, but it, it was all show, right? I mean, it's, it's all making the point that A, Eastman's not doing the work and also B, like, you know, it's kind of a defensive mechanism for when Eastman invariably attacks other republicans to say oh well they didn't pass my bill out you know and then they you know and then kurt and then mccabe can go well how much work did he do on it and i think it kind of is sort of telling about it but really that's not this noble endeavor that they did here that's there's not like any really great principle they're not you know when they when people were asking if they were uh, regretted defending eastman over the oath keeper stuff they go well, no, that was about free speech. You know, oh, you know, the, uh, you know, they don't, they just because they're controversial doesn't mean they lose their free speech rights. And it's just like, oh, all right, you they know, just don't want him to be at their meetings. They just don't want him to be at their meetings. That's really all it is. And I think it, it kind of speaks. It's just another really big, like, point in here that, you know, there's this incredible. Uh, dissent you know and fractures within the republican party and i think yeah. they're you know it's not to say anyone else is any better but so, uh, i think so it's just an important thing <clears throat> to keep on the radar as we kind of look at it and also you know when we're talking about redistricting right eastman and kirka were put together in the same district yeah 
Um, you brought up McCabe, and I actually kind of forgot about this until just now. But I, I, when he first brought up, or at least it was the first time I'd heard of the Foundation for Applied Conservative Leadership, he brought that up on the floor, and I just dashed off an email and said, "Hey, Representative McCabe, you spoke about the Foundation for Applied Conservative Leadership on the floor today as a source of some of the efforts to gum up the legislature. Can you elaborate?" And so he wrote me back, and he says, uh, "There are many articles on on Fassel and Rothfield online." Yes, they have affected the AK legislature in a big way in the last two years and in at least the two before that. My opinion is that they have caused Republicans to be in the minority simply because of their confrontational nature. I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong at all. Yeah, he has a big problem with the way they do business and and points to it as like this is part of the fracture that they're having. I mean, I think and, and McCabe's, you know, I think he is one of the more... I, I think he's one of the the Republican guys that's on the rise probably because he's he's kind of smart like that. I think that you know he's, there's things that made uh, former House Speaker Mike Chenault effective, and it was you know an ability to kind of thread the needle on a lot of these different efforts. And it was you know he didn't really have a whole lot of patience for the really right wingers. You know they also well, Chenault like kicked the, out Laura Reinbold right at one yeah. point. Well, I think about like like Chris Birch and. You know, just people that are like kind of decent within their worldview. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't think he's wrong when he says that, you know, the kind of that style of Eastman is why they're in the minority. The Republicans in 2018, you know, they had 22 members or 23 members at the time, but um, they'd already scared off uh, Ledoux and Stutes. So they only had 21 and 20, the 21st or one of those members was Eastman. And, and you know, several members said, we don't want to have a 21-member majority with a guy who has already been shown to not play nice, yeah. and um, and I think it that has continued to be a factor when they are considering how to organize. And, you know, so this year they were 20 and 20, and the Republicans lost Kelly Merrick, who was one of the legislators that Eastman was targeting is not conservative enough. And so surprise, this person that they were attacking, you know, he was attacking for mm-hmm. her faith and, 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 and questioning her, you know, anti-abortion, you know, she's anti, she's a very, you know, she's anti-abortion, but because Eastman was Eastman, you know, I think there was, there was very little chance that she was going to organize with a group where he would have as equal of an ability to come up the works as, as she did. Right. So, yeah. You know, and it always it, sucks when you look around and you're like, oh, man, this guy's on my team. Oh. Yeah, I mean, and especially when, you know, when you'd rather team up with all the Democrats than Eastman, I think it says a lot about Eastman. Right. And so it's all to say, like, if you're a progressive, Eastman should be one of your favorite legislators in a way. You know, he's a horrible he's got some horrible opinions about things, but he's effective at depriving the republicans of power he's and, done uh, the and, most damage to the party <laughs> yeah and 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 but the uh, thing is you know so the it's going to be really interesting to see how uh you know ranked choice voting plays into any of this because the track record so far hasn't been particularly good for the centrist republicans or the republican machine to give these guys the boot right because because they can win in a close primary yeah and yeah but you know does he does it does it change a lot when you're out in Wasilla in a very conservative district that Eastman already is in? I don't I don't know. I don't know either. But I but it seems like you've got you know more Democrats are going to vote for a number two candidate that's not Eastman. It seems like. Yeah, but it, the, you know it's it's the thing too is that you know a Republican alternative to Eastman is still from Wasilla so, is still a yeah. you know Wasilla Republican, right? So. Sure. 
Yeah, but, but then you, you might get a McCabe. You might get the guy that's not that that's standing up for you know a certain decorum and decency in in the process at least. I mean, he's not been that decorum or decent. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but fair. so but you know. Um, yeah, the Republicans went out and tried to campaign against Eastman. Anch- several Anchorage Republicans went out to campaign against him last year or in the 2020 elections. The only person that lost in that battle was one of the Anchorage Republicans. You know, moving forward, I just it's going to be really interesting to see. Do these efforts really move the dial away from Eastman or do they just make him stronger? Right. Or do they just make it, you know, fuel his uh facl disruptors that much more because you know that's the thing is that like you know that's the thing is that easton gets to turn around now and say the republican party is trying to get you know the establishments after me and he's not he's he's also not wrong either right so would you class eastman and palin in like the same kind of thought bubble I don't know, maybe. I mean, I guess if you if you were to put like you know Ben Shapiro in in the Sarah Palin bubble, then uh, I guess so. These like pseudo intellectuals. I've been having a lot of. I, I've been someone made a comment about like right left politics and and how it's this construct that we use to sort of imagine a much more complex system, and it's been really messing with my head lately because now I I have started to look at people and when we talk about you know like. Eastman being the furthest right, it's not really like it's not really a a, a spectrum in in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a much more complex uh, series of decisions that people are making about well, their it's politics. Like, yeah, it's like you the know, chaotic so good, really... lawful neutral, uh, the D and D, like the X Y thing. Yeah, yeah, but it's not even it's not even a two axis thing. You know, you you you're, there's so many dimensions of like you know is this person trying is it you know capitalism uh you know are you trying to protect big oil companies are you trying to that's the one that's the one thing that's like the most clear uh spectrum that i think you know we think about right left it's the you know how you feel about oil companies that's the thing is that is so interesting about eastman is that he may have these like wackadoo ideas about child marriage and all that sort of stuff but he's pretty normal when it comes to pretty normal Republican when it comes to oil policy, which is just, you know, just a point worth noting. Yeah. I don't know. I'd be like a lot of the successful um, Democrats in the last, you know, couple decades have been that way too. Right. You look at like Tony Knowles or Mark Begich or whatever they, you know, say the right things about oil companies. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the oil companies are a really big, powerful force in Alaska politics. So your partner Chanda has talked about this before with me, and she says that there's like three primary forces right now in Alaska politics. And she says that they're the oil companies, the Alaska Native corporations, and the unions. Does that still hold? Do you, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think those are what, you know, I consider those like the biggest sources of money, in-state sources of money and influence when it comes to, you know, campaigns. You know, when you are seeing these big packs, other than, you know, the Republican Governors Association or something like that, they're usually, you know, run by, you know, funded heavily by one of those three groups. But yeah, I think there are, you know, it'd be interesting, too, to look at, you know, how other forces are coming because, you know, the idea that you can drop a bunch of money and win an election is kind of changing, right? You know, I think that the uh, there's this unlimited amount of money right now in politics, uh, 
packs have always been unlimited or not always but you know recently been unlimited but now the campaigns are they can kind of do whatever they want they're unleashed right, right? and so but the thing, you know there's only so much airtime you can buy there's only so many mailers you can buy and so i think you know people that have access to other forms of influence you know whether it be you know an effective social media thing or whether they're plugged in with you know a church that's got a lot of followers or, or whatever you know those things those things are now i think important forces to be considered in it you know i think um you look at the results of the 2020 elections um in fairbanks especially um you know uh, senator john coghill lost there to rob myers i think big thing there was that you know myers there was a, a sort of a motivation from the church that didn't really seem to care a whole lot about covid and whereas i think you know, I think uh, Coghill was trying to be really COVID conscious with it and wasn't campaigning a lot and sort of got taken by surprise in that race. And so, you know, those are elements where, you know, I think there are ways to cut across what we think of as the traditional, like, you know, structures of political influence in the state. Um, yeah. An open-ended question. <laughs> That's it? You're just going to drop me right there? Um, so I, uh, I, while we're talking about elections, we should acknowledge that it, that June 11th has arrived early this year because I've been looking down the road at, at June 11th as the special election to fill the remainder of Don Young's term, and it's it's here now. It's it's they've got ballots in the mail. Uh, you know, I I might be able to vote like Monday or Tuesday if I want, and I think that really snuck up on me. I think it's going to sneak up on a lot of people. I think it's sneaking up on the campaigns because I'm seeing a lot of these, you know, there's 48 people running and they're just now kind of get the wheels turning. I'm seeing some websites are popping up and seeing a little bit of like tiny little snippets of advertising here and there. Um, announcements are starting to come out, but it feels like very early days campaigning and then ballots are going to be on people's desks on Monday morning, mm -hmm. right? Like it's going to be very, it's, it, it's happening now not not on june 11th like the election is now all of a sudden does that like feel like it caught you off guard or am i just an idiot <laughs> well i think we're all idiots sometimes but uh oh, okay. no I, I i agree i think um you know i think one of the early thoughts i had about this election was going to be it's going to be a real test of a candidate's ability to organize and stand up a campaign quickly right and somebody who is just spinning up now it, you know you've already wasted a month of time basically and name recognition i think is going to matter i think that ability to spin up the campaign is going to matter i think that you know guys like christopher constant and nick begich who have been campaigning i think that probably counts for more than we maybe initially anticipated but you know i i kind of am, you know i think it's going to be so fluky really by the end of the day because you know, 48 candidates, right? It's only going to take, you know, what, 8%, 10% might get you in, right? That's an interesting race now. You know, I think there's just, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if none of the candidates we think are going to get in, get in, you know? Um, yeah. Or if, you know, somebody gets in, you know, with 25%, like a Sarah Palin type or, or Santa Claus, and then finish last in the, in the, the rank choice element of it you know i think it's just it's a really bizarre it's a good solid alaska election is what you're saying it's like it's exactly what we're we're, we're all about up here it's I just mean, gonna I, be a wacky uh, town yeah i mean i think it's almost like we need to have like a what's it called uh is it trains planes and automobiles where they all everyone's trying to race across the can like cannonball, cannonball run. run yeah no, no yeah we need a cannonball 
No, no, Wacky Racers. It's like the, yeah. Oh, the yeah, Looney yeah. Tunes version of that, right? Yeah, it's we need Wacky like Racers Yogi, version Yogi of this. Bear yeah. in a car with Captain Caveman, and they're like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think just like how people are going to even approach this is like an interesting conversation to have. Like, how do you even get the pairing down? Well, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Matt, because I, because <laughs> I have endorsed a candidate. <laughs> All right. I mean, I, I feel a little strange about this. I feel like I'm, I wasn't ready for this, but I got a, I got a phone call from Mary Paltola and, and it was, I was, you know, it was a very nice phone call and she just talked about what she, what her issues were and she answered questions that i had and asked if i would endorse her and it caught me a little bit off guard and i said yes and i was like yeah sure and and i was like wow i just endorsed a candidate i mean it doesn't mean anything <laughs> i think i don't think that my endorsement carries a lot of weight but i think that it was like funny for me because i just the you know a few days prior to that i'd been telling someone what a strategic blunder it would be to endorse anyone in a primary this wide <laughs> because no there's no way to know that your that your candidate will get through you just wait 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 until the wait until the general election wait until they've whittled it down from 48 candidates to four and then pick a candidate to endorse but um but yeah i guess i'm endorsing mary because she was good on the telephone um also, Again, she's I mean, one of the few yeah. candidates that has a website with with Alaska focused issue items on it. I, I went to Nick Bagich's website the other day. He still doesn't have any issues on it. It's just like photos of him with guns. <laughs> like it's all it's all this like conservative virtue signaling stuff. I don't and and I think you know Santa Claus has some good good. Uh, he has a good platform because he's basically saying just go look at Bernie's platform. That's mine. <laughs> it's like, I don't know that I want to revise my guesses from the, our previous episode i think i'm gonna just stick with my original my original list yeah i was talking to my neighbor who's not like super political by any means yeah and what, he what was just his main think? concern was like he was just worried that sarah palin was gonna win he was like i just don't want sarah palin to win can you tell me yeah. that sarah palin's not gonna win and i said no oh, man i can't there the adn did a great article on on this this race and the thing that they kind of pointed out is that there's enough churn in our residents that there are a lot of conservatives here who don't remember how angry we are at Sarah Palin for quitting on us and are just sort of like these Fox News Republicans that think Sarah Palin's great. Right. And so she might be able to skate by with that. Yeah, although I haven't seen a ton of like hardcore Sarah Palin supporters either. But yeah. I also you know, I, I don't think I'd be running into him anyways. So I love I that she's I love that she's like against the you know that she showed up at the Republican convention and she's like the outsider and like fighting the fight and like she, I mean it's amazing she's like doing the trench run on the Death Star <laughs> it's like oh yeah good it's like classic Sarah Palin she yeah, I mean, came I in think... she came in as governor as like the reform ethics candidate and like the you know calling out everyone in the Republican Party and it's funny to see her back in that position again even after you know essentially being the biggest establishment name we have in the state yeah. It's going to, you know, I think it's going to be interesting. I think the, the thing that we probably should counter all, ourselves lucky is that this seat will only, you know, this person will only be in the seat for, what, five months, six months, yeah. right, at top. So uh, I think that's probably, probably for as, the best. As Crazy said, uh, candidate Crazy said, uh, this is a $100 lottery to get free health care for life. Yep. thought that was pretty astute. Okay. Yep. Um, so... Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but um, sometimes I feel like it's hard to keep up with the level of, of work you're doing, that I'm just coming here asking you questions. I have no information to offer myself. So <laughs> I sat down this week and I watched a 
presentation, uh, I, I was like, what is the most boring meeting? I'm sure Matt hasn't covered this. So I watched uh, Bill Smith. There's a lot the of chief, stuff that I haven't covered lately. Chief let's, information let's just be clear about officer. that. <laughs> so I watched Bill Smith, the chief information officer from the information uh, from the Office of Information Technology. Um, was, he, was he the chief information officer? Yeah, he's the CIO of the OIT. Oh, okay. It's a big deal then. <laughs> Yeah, he was a very serious kind of like he gave off kind of like a military vibe. I don't know anything about his background, but he was he was um, talking about cybersecurity, which is which is fun and also hilarious. And I do you want to do you want to know about cybersecurity in Alaska? Do you want to yeah, know about no, it? I want, why do we keep on getting hacked? It feels it feels like we just keep on getting hacked all the time. Well, that's that's Matt, because there are eight billion attacks per month in 2021, a wide range of targeted and spray attacks. Oh. <laughs> Eight yeah, billion. that's the spray attacks are the one you got to watch out for. Well, not, <laughs> it, but I feel like that's such a like meaningless number. Is that you know it's just people pinging, pinging the servers, right? Is is me is, tr- is me forgetting to like my password and typing in the wrong one four times? Is that a, four of those eight billion? You just cyber attacked the state, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, the cost of a data breach uh, on average to the public sector is two million dollars. Um, and that's probably the like insurance and whatnot they have to you know remember when they mailed everyone out all the hey we're sorry that we sorry that we lost all your personal information and here's <laughs> an optional thing you can get insurance if you want so yeah so that costs the state money um one of the things that was was interesting uh is they did get some questions about uh the division of elections so they asked about the breach on the division of elections and they said it didn't impact any election outcomes and that they're very confident uh, in the integrity of the elections and that there have been assessments done by the Department of Homeland Security where they bring in like specialty hackers to you know throw what they've got at our systems and they've said that they're they're fairly secure so that's a nice thing to know they said that security isn't like an IT issue anymore it's an organizational issue so security used to be or, or cyber security used to be you know a couple computer nerds defending their server but now it's like really everyone has access to all this information and you can just sort of social engineer your way in through a phone call. Um, so now it's a matter of training everyone up across the board on like best practices for not, you know, losing your password or f- clicking on a phishing email, um, which is kind of seems like a really hard thing to do on the, you know, when you're talking about an organization as large as, as the state of Alaska. Yeah. Do you ever, there's a really good book about hack, like the, the birth of hackers and stuff. And it's, um, uh, it's Ghosts in the Wires by Kevin Mitnick, mm-hmm. and he was a guy who basically, um, you know, I think it was like there was the Captain Crunch whistle that yeah, was yeah. just the right tone. Yeah. It was to... a cereal box. They pulled yeah, it out of Captain Crunch was, cereal, and it's sort of the story. He eventually got busted and stuff, and but yeah, the biggest. He talked about the biggest, you know, hacking. The biggest, most vulnerable piece of the system is always the people, right? Yeah. Is that you sort of social engineer your way you call up hey i'm the it guy give me your password and it happens you know people turn it over it's just that that sort of stuff and so it's just this kind of like squishy target sort of stuff that you know is is really interesting and so like do they have a solution how to fix everything does everyone have to have like they do two-factor authentication we have to all yes. call the same guy to log in yeah it'll probably be some of that but the um but basically they're what they're trying to do is um, right now, the state has like 3,000 servers in the executive branch uh, in 64 locations, <laughs> which are which are running 1,800 different random applications. What they're trying to do is they're trying to 
and, and I'm not sure how I feel about this yet, but they're basically trying to migrate everything to uh, Microsoft Azure, which is like a cloud service. And so instead of the state hosting all this hardware and having a bunch of people like manage the hardware in all these disparate locations, um, they're trying to offload some of that and move it all into like a cloud computing environment so that uh, the state isn't having to constantly do all these software patches or hardware upgrades or you know training employees to maintain these pieces of machinery um, and so in effect what that does is it is it takes what has been kind of a capital expenditure and and a personnel expenditure and it shifts it into more of like a subscription expenditure or like an ongoing like operations expense so I think what you might see is instead of like big capital requests for like, well, the, the one on the table right now, it's, I think they want something like $23 million to start this cloud migration. But once that's kind of done, then it just becomes a normal fee that everyone's paying. And then you start seeing probably inflated, inflated costs for everything that we're doing because now that's just an ongoing operational fee and then you know five years from now when those inflated costs get looked at and no one actually knows what the inflation is from they're like look at how much more it's costing us to do this we need to cut education you know and well that seems like a good place to be in yeah it's an interesting but that's an interesting thing of like shifting shifting uh capital costs to operational costs causes that problem and it makes me wonder how much we've done that in the past like when the costs of, of prisons are more than they used to be or whatever is that because we're doing it less effectively or is it because we've just absorbed something that's like a capital cost and made it a recurring cost so like from a budgeting perspective it's kind of like a knowing what goes into the pie is really important and that was a good reminder for me one of the things they said is really good for security is that this is going to be good for a lot of people that are still working from home or choose to work from home part-time because mm. now they're not going to have to do these like VPN tunnels. They can just log in directly to their cloud service. And it also has a lot more resilience in terms of like if a, if some hardware in Juno goes out, it doesn't isolate the rest of the state from that data. They can still access this this cloud service, right? So. Juno might not be able to access it, but everywhere else would be able to. So you're not trying to, you're no longer trying to protect like a physical server location that's like in a closet in, in Juno or Skagway or whatever. I mean, it probably makes sense like from a technical perspective, right? Like yeah. I don't have the ability to keep my stuff up to date. You know, there's the reason why it's all somewhere, you know, handled by someone else and especially you know when it but you aren't the state of alaska right i mean right so, and but so like i think that there's you know i don't necessarily trust the state of alaska to stay up to date on it either yeah but so, do you now do you trust microsoft because david wilson came in with a question about security and i kind of look, looked up what he was talking about and there was a a research group in 2021 that says they found a flaw in azure that allowed full read write access to thousands of customer databases you can imagine our surprise when we were able to gain complete unrestricted access to the accounts and databases of several thousand microsoft azure customers including many fortune 500 companies so you know this is a question of putting all of our eggs in one basket it's less likely that people are going to scoop up all of the state's data at once when it's distributed on 3,000 servers in a bunch of closets in in various departments it's inefficient but maybe by bringing it all into one place we're creating a, a a more secure system that can be patched more readily and and have a lot more operational security but if it does get broken into the problems where we face are probably much larger. So well, that, there's that a trade-off is a, there. Yeah, that, that is a relief. 
Yeah. Like it, it, it's one of those interesting things where it's like, you know, how do you judge the efficacy of the outcome? This we'll see. Hopefully, we don't get hacked anymore because yeah. it it was a pain in the ass when the court system was hacked and yeah. that sort of stuff was down. And the Department of Health and Social Services was down for an incredibly long time. The one takeaway from this that I really liked is that right now, any incident where information has been exposed is required to be reported. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that there's there's a tendency when you're in state government to kind of like cover your ass. It's like you don't want to uh, you don't want people to know your department messed up. And so you try and keep that a secret. It's nice that it's nice to know that like when information is exposed, that we all get to know about it and that it's reported publicly and that we're notified that our information has been <laughs> you know, has been violent, has been distributed or taken or stolen or whatever. And the final thing here is uh, when asked about monetary demands on the state, probably thinking about ransomware and things like that, he said that he is not aware of any monetary demands on the state, which was surprising to me because it seems hmm. like I, I, I'd kind of thought that the rumor was that there was some ransomware involved in some of these hacks that we'd had. Is um, Matsu Burrow and was ran, a couple of the local governments have been ransomware. Right, but he said that he didn't know of any demands on the state that involved uh, monetary demands. So, do you talk at all about like where the the, the hacks that you know have come from? Like, yeah, do you talk about like what was going on, what was the goal, or is that one of those things where it's like they talked well, about the ongoing that. investigation and we can't talk about that they were you know they gave a little harumph harumph executive session stuff but it was mostly it mostly sounded like there were some state actors who were kind of incidentally gathering information like not really directed at alaska but mm-hmm. just sort of generally directed it you know everyone who owns this particular piece of software that has a vulnerability will just scoop up whatever we can get he didn't name any specific um, either corporate or state actors aside from Ukraine and Russia as a region. He said there's a lot of attacks coming out of that region. He didn't make it sound like they were targeted attacks on Alaska, that they were more just kind of general, um, a lot of general attacks coming out of that area. So, yeah, anyways, that's the that's my little rundown on the uh, CIO of the OIT report on cybersecurity. Would you say that the legislators were like typically or generally like happy with this guy's answers or are there a lot of like, well, we know that's bullshit, but we'll move on kind of responses that they seem like the budgeters. I'd say a little bit of the latter that they seemed mostly bored. I think David Wilson and Bill Wilkowski asked the most uh, well-researched and important questions and they seemed like they knew what they're talking about. David Wilson actually asked a lot of really good questions. The uh, legislature is like, and it's getting near the end now. Yeah. Uh, and the big, really, the really big question still is what's the PFD size going to be? And we're going to kind of save this is a, a bigger conversation for another day. But so the l- most recent sort of status of it is that both the Senate and the House are at the, technically at the same level currently of $2,600. The House splits it between two different pots. The Senate's got it in one pot. There's sort of talk that the Senate might want to do an additional $1,000 on top of it in an energy rebate. Um, and the governor wants 3700 It's going to be interesting uh, because it's like one of those things where it kind of feels like everyone sort of lost the, lost the thread a while ago on the PFD. Yeah. Like, what are we arguing about? I forgot. Yeah, I think and I think there's a decent amount of people who are arguing against it kind of out of reflexive you know like we've been fight they've been fighting dunleavy over it for the last three and a half years and 
It's caused an enormous amount of political strife in the state. Well, also, no one wants to give him a giant PFD heading into his election year. Right, right. But at the same time, like there is more money. It's like the sort of it's one of the situations where like the some of the elements of it have changed in that we have more money now. But the sort of the fundamental issue of you know we have this uh, formula on the books that we're not following. Right. Is and also that our finances are still not really solid. Like if another crash in oil prices and we're right back to where we were. But yeah, like I don't know. I don't know how how else to describe it than it seems like everyone's lost the thread on this thing. Well, also it's just the the PFD has become so meaningless, right? Now, as soon as we abandon the formula, like now that we've abandoned the formula for several years, the PFD has essentially become a budget line item where we're just how much can we pay ourselves this year versus how much do we want to spend on education? So now all of a sudden the PFD is in competition really with every other service and it's a it's a tough thing to say well we we aren't going to fund uh clean drinking water in these communities but we are going to pay out a three thousand dollar pfd to everyone and so i don't I i think i think they made life more complicated for themselves by detaching the pfd from this sort of ongoing commitment um, and then making it really debatable every year. I think the other, the one other thing that's kind of still out there in the wind is this effective date clause. Like, I, I don't know that it's going to land and be real messy, but it sure could. I mean, if the Republicans want to prove that they're not uh, the clowns that David Eastman and company have painted them, they should really get on board with that effective date clause because it's just something that hasn't been weaponized in the past like this. I think, you know, we kind of fight over the budget and then we get to the effective date clause and we say, we want government to function. The effective date clause is a thing that directly comes from Eastman, right? This is a thing that, um, you know, we saw several state legislatures, uh, Republicans weaponize in recent years. Does it come from Eastman? Yeah. Because I, I thought it was like Corey and um, Dunley oh, Mills sort of thing. Yeah, I thought it was a big Corey Mills Well, I mean, it came, yeah, and, uh, I mean, it came from everything. them, but I mean, the, the fact that they were voting against it in the first place was, uh, you know, I think that came from Eastman. I think that kind of this this, like, this yeah. concept that they that, could use, but it seemed very coordinated with the administration. Yes. Oh, I me. would agree. Yes, that it was hand in hand. But the you know, it's a it that is a FACL a tactic pl- uh, tactic. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe that's what this is all about. You know, putting maybe putting Eastman in the corner is kind of about taking that off the table. Right. I mean, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I just don't want the session to go on all year long. I think that's as I think that is, you know, I think that's a really damaging thing to the entire institution of the legislature. I mean, I think that we were talking, I was talking with some reporters last night. One of the really kind of interesting things about this whole sort of status of, how the legislature has sort of grown in the last few years is that it's sort of a miserable situation for a lot of people. A lot of people are, you know, it's had these like long interminable special sessions. People are frequently hopping on flights Friday, coming back midday, Monday, um, to the point where, you know, I think that it feels like people aren't really trying as hard or something or not as engaged in it or, and not as, the whole thing sort of seems bad. <laughs> yeah. The longer you make it go, the bad, the worse it gets. I think people kind of are just eventually at the end of the rope with the level of of travel that they're they're inflicting upon themselves and and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I I covered session for six seven years in person, and, and picking up and moving is tough. And I was typically doing the three months to 120 days, and I just couldn't imagine 
the amount of time that they are now being asked to be there in in session and again i think that's kind of that's sort of part of the ploy right is that you know make session a totally miserable affair so fewer good honest people want to do it you know and well, it's, and it's it's a little bit like one of those boxing matches that just goes on and on and on, where everyone's arms get tired, and then they're just you can't really even land yeah. a punch anymore. They're just lean into like, each other, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's you know they lose all their staff, all their staff goes away, and all of a sudden they're just there working super late, and everyone's miserable and making bad decisions, and it's like that's not good for us as yeah. a state. Yeah. So hopefully they get it done sooner than later. Well, it's an election year, so that will probably. Yeah that will probably be the thing that makes it happen earlier this year. And hopefully some good folks will get elected and it won't be a problem in the future. Yay. Yay. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing too, is that it, you know, money having a surplus of money makes things easier, right? Like that, that was the biggest reason why the session ever got done in 90 days is because they had money. You know, that wasn't really any other great reason for for why it was done so quickly speaking of getting done in 90 minutes maybe we should wrap up our podcast yeah that sounds good (laughs) all right well hey it was great to uh chat with you this week and we'll talk again soon um see what happens with redistricting the ongoing never-ending saga of redistricting and all the fun things in the legislature what what um this is the time of year where things get really 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 busy what should i be looking for in the next week or so yeah, I don't know. I th- you know, we'll, the surprises will come when the surprises come, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not a, it's not a surprise if we're expecting it, right? So, yeah. you know, I think, I, you know, I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's not a lot of surprises and we just kind of end up limping along, but we'll see. Well, I'll be surprised if you're not surprised that there's not a lot of surprises. So, we'll, <laughs> I guess. We'll... <laughs> All right, Matt. We'll talk again soon. Goodbye. All right. Talk to you later. Hello to you out there. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you want to support our work, you can find Matt Buxton at MidnightSunAK.com. He puts out a daily newsletter about what's going on in Alaska politics and the legislature, and it's just really great writing. Uh, and if you want to support my work, you can find me at Patreon.com slash Alaska Robotics. And that supports my time editing this podcast and doing a lot of other things like comics and watercolor paintings and things like that. So I really do appreciate it. And a big thanks to Marion Call, whose music we excerpted uh, for our theme song of our show. Uh, That comes from Real Alaskan Girl. Uh, Go check it out on Bandcamp.